Welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. Welcome back. Again, my, my why voice, not? My voice sounds deeper. I'm not <laughs> Ooh, sure. Why not? Welcome Co- back on a Sunday. COVID special edition to the, this is the literature review. This is the one that makes us look really smart. Yeah, it's just crazy bunch of junk we've read we have to like google pronunciations but you know it works so we're gonna kind of go over the last week's worth of literature as fast as humanly possible all right so go things that were released throughout the last you know couple weeks this first thing is actually a preprint although it really talks about the dynamics of contact and airborne transmission between individuals indoors and it's from the British Medical Journal. British Medical Journal. BMJ. The preprint, BMJ. So the interesting part about this is their modeling, uh, which is a little different than the CDC thing that came out yesterday, but their modeling shows a main transmission mechanism through close contact, most directly, but also mediated by fomites. Fomites. So they actually stated in their research and stuff that airborne route is negligible which is again the complete opposite of what cdc said yesterday just yesterday cdc said this is airborne so i guess ultimately we all should be wearing masks and wiping everything down until we know for sure because this is confusing for me doesn't take much so yeah i don't know what to say all right so let's move on another preprint we're going to try to state those things but this is from hitter at all Hitner. Hitner. Oh, there isn't any. From there. May 16th. So, really, this again talks about the early testing. And so, they did this model looking at all the COVID 19 data from the US up until March 31st of this year, of course, because COVID's all not more than one year old. And basically, the places that had a large number of tests per capita had an associated lower cumulative mortality in these 18 states. I th- I think it was kind of kind of a giveaway in the title. It was called Early and Massive Testing Saves Lives. COVID-19. Yeah. So, so yeah, <laughs> test a lot, less people die. Pretty simple. Fewer. Fewer people die. <laughs> okay. Oh, let's, can we talk about your relatives? The African green monkeys. <laughs> yes. There's been a uh, an outbreak in the African green monkeys. No. It's a lab outbreak. There, they there did a, it to them. <laughs> This is also a preprint, uh, Woosley et al., uh, May 17th. And they actually established uh, a, a model of African green monkeys for COVID-19. Basically, they thought they, they've shown or they're noticing that high levels of SARS-CoV-2, so COVID-19, replication and developed pronounced respiratory disease following a much lower and more natural dose. You know how did they how blah, did blah, they blah. how did they infect these monkeys? Like, hey, I'm gonna put the. the does this banana taste funny to you? <laughs> like, <laughs> does it taste like COVID to you? Because I'm thinking there's COVID in this banana. <clears throat> but I don't think they speak English. Sorry, African monkeys. But anyway, basically, they found that these monkeys have very similar transmissibility and symptomatology to humans, and that they're going to be able to study 
the human host immunity mm. a little bit more closely. Sadly, we can't edit out that funny noise you just made. Oh, so happened? then we talked a little bit about some of the clinical characteristics and healthcare setting stuff that came out in the Journal she- of Medical Virology. Yeah, Q et al. That's C U I. May 17th. Fancy. So they looked at 2,597 pediatric patients. This just looks at the different lab diagnostic tests. So, of course, for a long time now, we've been saying that the adults that get COVID tend to have lymphopenia, so the low uh, lymphocytes. They're showing that very few children, only 9.8% of this 25, almost 2,600 cohort, actually got lymphopenia compared to adults. However... They had an elevated creatinine kinase MB isoenzyme, which I don't really order all that often. But in kids, 27% of them, that was elevated. That's a lot. of course, goes back to that whole multi-system inflammatory thing with heart injuries in pediatric patients. And we will talk a little bit more about kiddos coming up. And, of course, we're going to have that pediatric grand rounds. This is my squirrel tangent, but... Anyway, that's coming up on our not this week, next week, next Tuesday, a week from uh, this Tuesday. COVID echo. Yes. Anyway, but definitely my voice feels deeper. But anyway, um, so public health policy and practice. So there was a little thing about uh, that Parada Parada at L uh, did on Thanks. attitudes and behaviors related to COVID nineteen, which I find this kind of interesting, just because they. They found that women actually expressed a higher perception of threat from COVID-19 and lower confidence in the health system, and they were actually more likely to adopt preventative behaviors than men. So women are a lot more careful, a lot more hesitant to but they have trust, trust easily. Issues. But they have trust issues. <laughs> trust issues. But, Not uh, going to go there. Yeah, and older people, like people like my parents, demonstrated <laughs> like a higher <laughs> level, like a higher level of awareness and concern about COVID nineteen, which we've seen. Uh, and that's which a, is a good thing, yeah. though, because they have the higher risk of severe complications. Let's face it; they're watching TV. You know, they know they're at high risk. So they've been quarantined for the last couple of decades in retirement. Yeah, my my parents <laughs> haven't even seen the highway. They haven't gone out past their driveway and like. 16 months. So Is that because you took their licenses away? Or no, they just don't want to get sick. All right, so we're going to move on to what was released on Tuesday. This is um, Zhang et al. from the Emerging Infectious Disease Journal. May 18th. May 18th. Wow, that's just so crazy that this was just last week. But um, they looked at hotel rooms. So when patients were quarantined to hotel rooms... If, if you looked at the RNA that was able to be detected on different surfaces in this hotel room, now remember this is the RNA detected. It does not talk about how virulent that RNA still is, but the RNA of SARS-CoV-2 was still there on 36% of all tested services in this hotel room, even after cleaning, I'm assuming. But gross. Seriously. COVID 19 is like the least concern of mine in a hotel room <laughs> on what's on the sheets. And I watched sheets. a I'm just saying, Tony episode once as a kid. Yeah. I couldn't go to a hotel for a long time after that without layers. But, but anyway. But this is only RNA. It doesn't really mess, you know, it doesn't really suggest that it's viable, but the RNA is there. But here's my question. So these are cleaned hotel rooms, but yet it was still found in the pillow covers, sheets, duvet covers. Gross. 
So we're coming home and we're washing our scrubs right away. Does that even mean anything? Because I'm assuming that hotels are like washing in hot water. Again, it's RNA. It doesn't mean it's a viable virus. So gross. So so then uh, we had a little thing that came out of the annals of internal medicine. Which one are you going down to? Oh, I'm going down to Kusirka. Oh, yeah, Kusirka. This is a good one. Yeah, and this was an interesting one that they did about false negative rates of PCR testing. Wait a minute. Are you saying that the PCR test has false negatives? Yeah, that, apparently that's so. So you can't say, yep, your test is negative. Go back and work at the nursing home. That's not a thing. It's not a thing. Um, but yeah, they had actually noticed that the false negative rate um, is actually lowest uh, between symptom onset and three days following symptom onset. But it was still 20%. Yeah, still a lot. So it's one in five. So I think that that's really critical to understand. Um, but and I really, think just with the holiday weekend, it's really critical to understand that you can't not test people on a holiday weekend because that three-day window, yeah. kind of worthless. But then they actually looked at uh, prior to symptom onset that patients had a high probability of false negative 100% four days prior to symptoms, 100%. That kind of makes sense. Yeah, one day prior to symptoms, 67%. So, I mean, you know, it's really... It's really tough to know how, I mean, I, I've had a patient uh, who actually uh, worked with somebody the day before he got symptoms. So, you know, he probably would have, with symptoms, been more infected. But, here, here uh, I like this sentence because I think we've been saying this for the last ever. Infection should not be ruled out on the basis of PCR alone if clinical and epidemiological evidence is strongly suggestive of SARS-CoV-2 infection. Wow, so your hunch might be a thing. Mic drop. Anyway, so now we're going to move on another preprint, but this is just this Rimland et al. on May 19th. We're going to talk about some drug testing here and different things that have been noticed. And so he looked at, this was the first clinical outcome looking at tocilizumab. Ooh. Cohort, 11 critically ill patients. So, yeah, 11, not a huge amount. Um, But the mixed outcomes using this medication, basically they found that all the CRP levels decreased, so awesome. But they had higher IL-6 concentration um, after the tocilizumab. I had to say it twice because I practiced. Mm. Thank you, Wikipedia. Um, And... But they, they did not have any difference in the clinical improvement, in fever, and oxygenation requirements. Yeah. So... I don't know. This might join the AIDS drug. A bunch of them died. Yeah. Three. That's, that's three out of 11. I mean, that's pretty good. And again, they still keep coming out with new AIDS drug studies that show the same thing. This, so though, is car- in therapy, yeah. that journal. So they did the whole thing again with hydroxychloroquine. Did I say it? You oh, did. Shoot. Azithromycin, lopinavir, and rotinavir. Lopinavir. Lopinavir. And chloroquine for off-label use, and and really over a month, 120 cardiac adverse drug reactions occurred in the COVID-19 group. 86 percent of adverse effects were associated with the hydroxychloroquine H drug alone, or in combination with azithromycin. And it wasn't huge, actually. The incidence of the cardiac thing, you know, 0.77 to 1.54 percent of COVID patients, but again, a lot of cardiac risk with that. Especially and, when it's not beneficial. Yeah, and it doesn't it doesn't change much. So, so far. So far. 
Um, and then just to recap once again, this is out of the journal Circulation, which is a big journal, of course. This Bell Hodger at all, May 17th, looked at a retrospective analysis of children in France and Switzerland. Children may experience acute heart failure in this multi-system inflammatory syndrome following SARS-CoV-2, which, of course, we talked about, you know, about a week ago on the COVID echo. Um, when they were looking at these kiddos, 35 kids that they looked at um, who were in, admitted to the pediatric intensive care for cardiogenic shock, left ventricular dysfunction, severe inflammatory state. 88% of them had tested positive for SARS-CoV-2 infection. Now, they don't say in this, did they test positive for the PCR or the antibody? I'm guessing you know, IgG. Yeah, because a lot of these kids, of course, this presents later. Yeah, and there's really, you know, that whole testing them 14 days later. I mean, a lot of these people... These kids are sick a month later, and how often is this IgG still positive? Mm-hmm. You know, some of the stuff that we saw from Mayo, it starts to drop off, and at what point can't you find it? So, again, if it looks like a duck, it acts like a duck. It's so probably COVID. So another preprint on the nineteenth of May. Bitcher. Bitcher. B i c h e r. Man, be careful there. He. Uh, it was a an agent based model of transmission that they did in Austria, and uh, and it was interesting because they looked at uh, this contact tracing and they found that individual contact tracing compared to like household level or workplace level contact tracing was the most effective policy, and you could reduce eighty one percent of the cases while quarantining only while quarantining only does twenty eight percent drop. Right, so you need to go case by case. Person A has it. You have to find the other people they came in contact with rather than just globally saying. You have to be intrusive when you're doing contact tracing. Intrusive. So we're going to move on. This is from the Journal of Science and Total Environment. Initially, I thought it said entertainment. I was like, what? I I got this one in my mailbox. Yep, science and total environment. So bottom line here, medical masks, cotton masks. That's what they studied. Ho et al. did. No significant differences between participants with medical versus cotton masks in either environment between a bedroom or in a car. And so the whole donation of homemade masks might have been worth it. It's a good thing. Good thing. Our patients are all wearing them. And again, it's not protecting them so much, but it's protecting everyone in our clinic and in the store. I was just in a... I was just in a uh, gas, gas station, station and everybody and their mother was without a mask. You so had a mask. I had a mask on. They thought I was it's robbing really them. It's really cute. <laughs> it's got Barney on it. Yeah. So so <laughs> then uh, transmission. So, I like this. Journal of Aerosol Science. Yeah, I didn't even know that was a thing. But Feng et al. Uh, basically looked at, wow, does stuff travel farther than six feet? I thought it was exactly six feet where somebody would cough and it goes six feet and then just drops right to the ground. Well, that's why they have stickers on the floor everywhere to keep you six feet apart. I've been doing some studies and it seems like it's like one to two miles, but I might be, I might not have the best. That's because your running partner is way faster than you. So he catches up. He coughs in front of me. (laughs) But yeah, they're, they're saying six feet is probably an underestimate. And so uh, where, again, this wearing the face masks, very important. Very important. Just not being six feet. Being six feet away just isn't enough. 
So, you know, we kind of alluded to this not that long ago, uh, especially with Dr. Nasca when she was on. This is a preprint from Fountain Jones et al. I dig that name. But this is looking at the different lineages of SARS-CoV-2. So there has been mutation. There's different lineages. They're finding an A, B, and a C currently as of this moment. A and B did appear to start in China and subsequently ended up in Washington State, so the West Coast. Whereas lineage C, which was not found anywhere in China that they have found, um, primarily European, and that has been what's been found on the East Coast U.S. And we're right in the middle of the country, so I'm guessing we're like a combo. A plus B plus C equals The interesting part of this is that... uh, they think the C is actually more transmissible, uh, which is the one that went to New York. And it's interesting because I remember when Dr. Nasca talked about, um, you know, some of these things that typically when you get a mutation, they're less virulent. But that doesn't necessarily mean it change, that their transmission might be different. And Perfect. this one looks more. Yeah. Do you want to? Oh, I like the study. I'll do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so out of Nature Medicine, this was published May 19th. My at all? Looked at an artificial intelligence algorithm that's looking at chest CT findings with the clinical history to get a rapid diagnosis of COVID-19. So a couple months ago, you know, I think we had talked about that. We had the radiologist on um, Punjabi. Dr. Punjabi. I love that name also. But basically, you know, we can't officially diagnose COVID with the CT. However, they have looked at this new thing and that they're showing that this algorithm of the CT is actually equal sensitivity compared to a senior thoracic radiologist with much more sensitivity. So very awesome. And they've been able to identify patients and call them positive COVID who then had their subsequent PCRs come back positive where they were originally called COVID negative on the CT. And so this just kind of looks at another way of getting this diagnosis. But again, they have the symptoms, looks like COVID, acts mm, like COVID. Probably COVID. So then the next little thing was actually in the Journal of Applied Laboratory Medicine. I believe this was, I don't know if there's a date on this, May 19th. Uh, and the <laughs> it was Suhayandana, Suhayandana, I can't. Suhayandana. Yeah, at Al. Uh, evaluated the clinical performance of this IgM IgG serology, and this stuff is much better than the PCR swabs. Uh, you know, they're talking uh, a sensitivity of 100% specificity of 98.7 uh, at 15 days or more after uh, confirmation. Uh, so, really, you know, if if those if you get these false negatives and you and you check this, it's pretty high confidence that if it comes back positive. You had a patient with COVID. I just think it's interesting because uh, 14 patients who had negative antibodies on admission to the hospital actually had positive antibodies within four to five days, even Mm. though they say, let's look at, you know, 15 days. Yeah. And they're saying seroconversion to IgM and IgG. Yeah. Five days and four days. So, yeah. Um, You know, the, the peak is, they're saying 14. So. All right. So we're going to jump to the Lancet. You have to talk about this because it's in the Lancet. And just yes. this is just a follow up. Of course, we know this that the people who get more critically ill tend to be older with cardiopulmonary comorbidities. But they've also added in their study this observational cohort of 1,150 individuals 
that they also were more severe if they had biomarkers for inflammation and thrombosis. So also independent risk factors for severe disease. Yeah. Then uh, some stuff on modeling and prediction. Baker et al., and this was actually in uh, Science, Kind of interesting, They there, you know, there's been all this talk that, oh, it's summer, everything's going to go away. And they actually looked at nine different cities and uh, <laughs> yeah, and they kind of looked into the extent which uh, their populations got immunity and, and what the, the pandemic looked like depending on the climate. And they've basically decided that the climate plays a modest role in affecting the size of the outbreak uh, and efficacy uh, of control measures. So, it, it, you know, we might get a little bit of a break, but in Minnesota, it's only warm for like 80, 84, day, 84 days, and then all of a sudden it's we get cool again. So, yeah, that's important. So then just a really quick preprint, looking at transmission and that whole RT getting less than one, then it's actually showing negative transmission rates. So unless you live in the states of New York, Michigan, New Jersey, or Louisiana, your infection ability is not going down yet. Those four states, they've actually started to have decline. So the um, transmission continues to be elevated. All right, next. Oh, we're going to move into like May twenty first, and back I to think, the Lancet. Yeah, back to Lancet, which uh, I think this was really kind of an interesting thing where they talked about um, that you know quarantine facilities. <laughs> this seems pretty obvious, like. If you got somebody that needs to be quarantined and you lock them up somewhere in a quarantine facility, which uh, I don't think we do here, uh, that's actually more effective than just telling them to stay home. <laughs> Didn't see that coming. <laughs> it's like, okay, you can't go anywhere. And then you see them at the Jiffy Lube. So, yeah, I think sneezing, this, sneezing wiping their hand coughing. on their nose and then touching your fomite. So, yes, what we need to do is have quarantine facilities with locked doors. Uh, and that's in Lancet. So, yeah. That's probably not ethical. Nope. So then May 20th of 2020, of course, the Journal of Infectious Diseases, uh, Ratnazar Shumate. Nice try. Shumate. So this, again, looks back at the temperature slash humidity slash whatever, um, just to kind of look at the different environments when they looked at SARS-CoV-2 and saliva culture media on dr- and on dried stainless steel surfaces. Basically, 99% of infectious diseases, infectious virus was inactivated after 6.8 minutes in saliva and 14 minutes in culture media. Basically, if it's sunny outside, your risk actually does go down, but there's a cloud, better to be inside. Don't hang out with your friends if it's cloudy because there's nothing there to kill it. They're going to give you COVID. Yeah, and I I think that that's still, I think if you look at what may be the most boring job in the world... It's just watching that little piece of saliva float through the air <laughs> to see how, and then test it later to see if it still has live virus. It's kind of like a kid chasing bubbles. Yes. It's like, watch that thing. So as we move into wedding season, a lot of people have postponed or eloped or downsized, but in the Journal of Emerging Infectious, Emerging. Emerging Infectious Diseases, there was a, we're going to do a case index study. So a wedding in Jordan, 76 of the 350 wedding guests tested positive for COVID. 53% of whom were symptomatic. 47% were asymptomatic at diagnosis. So again, high communicability. It's like you go to that wedding and there's glitter and then you have glitter everywhere for the next several months. Imagine that glitter, glitter is COVID. Interesting thought. And to be clear, this is Jordan, the country, not Jordan, Minnesota. 
I don't there think were there's people, probably many Yusufs in Jordan, Minnesota. I know, but I'm just saying. I don't know if there's people might be listening. Fifty wedding guests in Jordan, Minnesota. Mm. They have and, a nice baseball stadium. Anyway. Yes, they do. And so, <laughs> let's talk a little bit. I'm not sure if we were doing that next geographic spread one. You know, I think just to to really quick, this is from the Journal of Public Health Management and Practice that. You know, they started to look at a little bit of the American Indian reservations and their impact, but basically the disparities between different populations in our country and all of those things, which we actually will have an echo coming up on that soon too, but uh, non-English speaking households and households with in out indoor plumbing have a higher rates. So interesting. All right. So preprint. Another preprint. Mm-hmm. So, man. oh. This whole autoimmune, the H drug. Interestingly, and I think a lot of us have actually wondered this, if you've got the people with autoimmune uh, rheumatic diseases, and they're already taking the H drug. Oh, is it a good preventative medication? Yeah, and actually they did this little study. They had 722 patients who were on hydroxychloroquine. Oh, it's hard to say that. In Seville, Spain. And uh, sadly, over seven weeks, only five cases of COVID were reported on patients on the H drug and five among those who were not and who also had this. And so small. Did nothing happen. Right. But basically the same. Didn't help. Didn't matter. So there's just, but again, it's only five people with and five people without it. So hard to know. There you go. So uh, another preprint study, Sayordia, uh, um, looking at 17 different trials. They looked at a bunch of trials, you know, the whole let's combine them all together thing, looking at viral clearance and clinical outcomes, looking at favipravir did have a positive impact on symptoms compared to other medications, whereas lopanavir, ritonavir, hydroxychloroquine and arbidol had no statistical difference on viral clearance. No clinical improvement with any of the others. And by positive impact, we don't mean this is a slam dunk by right. the looks of this it study. It just said positive impact. Yeah. So, And again, it's a preprint. So, And another preprint, uh, and we were talking, it's actually a cross-sectional study, and this was actually done in non-healthcare-related uh uh, residents uh, after they had the stay-at-home stuff, and they talked a little bit about anxiety and high levels of anxiety uh, due to COVID-19. And it's just kind of interesting because if you look at uh, anxiety in this group, that there's a higher level in people who know a lot about COVID-19. <gasps> They're probably sitting watching TV all day, hearing everything. You don't say. Um, and, so, and, and so interestingly, it was even higher in people who were married so I'm not sure what that means. Does, does that mean like their anxiety overall was higher or their anxiety about COVID was higher? Mm, I'm mm. not sure. But 48% of respondents reported being lonely and loneliness was more common at older ages. So my parents would get that. So your mom's highly anxious because she's married to your dad. Is that what you're and saying? And she's COVID concerned. There you go. Because mm. she has an anxious son. Anyway. Mm. So we're going to look at the Journal of Clinical Virology again. This was actually published May 10th, so it's like super old. Just kidding. They looked at the a stepping down strategy and just showing that the differences in social distancing, 80-day um, period of social distancing was more effective than a 40-day, 
Um, but it also depended on what percentage of people actually followed this. I don't know how they really studied that, but it would just make sense. Yeah. And then we, we could talk about the one and how coronavirus affects the market, but oh, I don't care. I mean, I care. Yeah, but eh, whatever. Anyway. Oh, All right. So back to the H drug. Oh, no. In the Lancet, though. Go for it's it. It's Lancet. Oh, they keep working with this thing. Uh, so using either the H drug or chloroquine, with or without that azithromycin thing, uh, they looked at a, a basically a multinational uh, analysis. And 96,000 patients. Wow. Six continents. And the reality was <laughs> that patients uh, that were whom treatment was not initiated within the first 48 hours were excluded. So you had to have been on it for a while. Or if they were getting remdesivir, they were not let in the study. So it was a little bit better of a study because it didn't combine it with other things. So what happened? Well, all four treatment groups, no matter what, how they mixed these drugs up, were associated with a higher risk of in-hospital mortality compared to those patients who got nothing. So They died more. Yeah. I, again, we've seen this over and over and over, and... Again, all four treatments were associated with strong increased risk of de novo ventricular arrhythmias. Oh, I should have done that. You should have done you. that. Yeah, it's just this. It just keeps popping up. Hydrochloroquine. I think uh, it's in the news. All right, preprint, but on vaccines, mild to moderate uh, COVID infection antibody responses against the viral spike protein. So this is the thing that helps get the viral spike protein is what helps the COVID get into the cells through that ACE2 receptor. The, co- the antibody, the, the vaccine will attack that spike protein or bind to that, thus preventing it from getting into the cells. So that is kind of showing some promise. The problem is, as Dr. Noska did make a comment a couple uh. weeks ago, that that is where it appears that this virus is trying to it's mutated. mutate is in that um, viral spike like our protein. So, so the question is, will it still attach to the spike protein if it mutates? Right. So stay tuned. Way you heard it, people you, are figuring that out. Yeah, you heard it here first. Here first. So next, uh, and this is actually on, uh, I don't, I don't think this is preprint, the next one. It's actually... It's called the characterizations of patients who return to hospital following discharge from COVID-19. So a lot of people are in the hospital and they don't succumb to the disease and they go home. But there's a significant amount of death afterwards, says our author. Yeah, in this study, 50% of cases of this 100, so 103 patients of 2,800 who had been discharged, 103 returned for emergency care. So 3.6% that had been discharged, came back within five, four and a half days. 56 of those got readmitted. 50% of them that came back, it was because of respiratory issues. So these patients, of course, had higher comorbidities. Their first hospitalization was really short. uh, And they did not, ironically, get anticoagulation during that first hospitalization. Yeah, and it was like four of those people that got readmitted died. So, again, sometimes it's delayed. And I think we've heard that in the nursing homes as well is that a lot of patients from the nursing home people that we have had on our ECHO uh, where patients will return from the hospital and then just be found uh, uh, that they had died overnight. So that does occur as well. So uh, next preprint. Preprint mental health. This is just kind of a fun one that a lot of healthcare workers they looked at, even in 60 different countries, 2,500 healthcare professionals 
50% of them self-reported burnout. Hmm. That's not good. But interestingly, if they had adequate PPE, that was associated with lower risk of burnout. <gasps> Wait <But> a minute. <laughs> what you're trying to say is if I feel safer at work and less risk of like getting COVID and dying myself, I have less burnout? I can't say that. It hasn't been studied. <laughs> the CDC has not released that information. All right, we're going to skip that one, come back to that. So this next study out of JAMA Internal Medicine Public health surveillance of staff and residents at independent living residents found that um, three of 80 residents and two of 62 staff um, that had SARS-CoV-2, none of the three residents had been ill. They all felt fine The the while well, both of the staff members had symptoms. So are staff trying to get out of work that they complained of symptoms? I'm just kidding. So the staff had symptoms. The residents did not have symptoms. But they repeat tested, and now there were more infected residents. So asymptomatic, asymptomatic. So they're really the whole thing is going down to the fact that, especially in these super high risk areas and independent and assisted living communities, which has just destroyed Minnesota, that strict staff screening, social distancing, visitor exclusion, um, really need to happen in these places. Yeah, I think one of the things that when I look. Let me start over. When I read this, I mean, my perception at the beginning of this, uh, maybe a couple of months ago, was that if it got in the nursing home, anybody who got it was going to have a significant problem. But the reality is there's a lot of asymptomatic elderly people. So we have to keep that in mind. And we're going to end today with a, uh, a little thing that was done for an impact of super spreaders on dissemination and mitigation of COVID-19. This is a preprint by Sneppen and Simonson. Sneppen, like Sneppen out. It kind of sounds like an accountant firm. Yes, it does. Sneppen and Simonson for your accounting needs. No. So anyway, they did kind of an interesting thing that they they looked at these um, models with these super spreaders, the people that spread the disease way better than anybody else. They're like super good at it. Uh, and they investigated uh, kind of these containment strategies under different models. And they found that limiting contacts in settings with diffuse social interactions, and this would be the bars, the public transport, lecture halls, was way more effective than just limiting the same amount of contact events in the home or work setting. So so it's these places, the bars, the public transport, and the lecture halls that really are the big problem. Uh, and they find that when these super spreaders, these people that – go around these places, they infect a ton of people. Yeah, so a ton of people. And it kind of makes me think a little bit of, well, Typhoid Mary. Typhoid Mary. So there's going to be like these typhoid or Corona Kurtz. Um, <laughs> Corona Kurtz, we're all getting infected. You no, know, I mean, Typhoid Mary. I mean, this woman was carrying typhoid around and she was a super spreader. And giving it to all these like high upper class New York families. Yeah, she was an asymptomatic carrier and was actually quarantined for how long? 30 years? Almost 30 years of her life they put her in quarantine. Isn't that horrible? She'd escape and then she'd get another job cooking and then people would die. It's an amazing story. You should Google that. We may have to do a addiction podcast on Typhoid Mary. It doesn't fit though. We could make it. Um, But anyway... So yes, asymptomatic people spreading. This is why we are not allowed to go to restaurants and anything like that at this point or the state fair, which or was canceled this sadly. week. For the sixth time in history, my 10-year-old keeps reminding me. Last time was when there was a polio outbreak. Hmm. 
six times only in the history of the fair. I don't know how long the fair has been going on. But anyway, I think that is a huge wrap up of all the new stuff. A lot of, excuse me, a lot of interesting stuff. Yep. So Tuesday, what do we got going Tuesday for the Echo? Dr. Baker from the Hennepin County Medical Examiner's Office and then our very special guest from MDH talking about some changes to the guidelines. The guidelines. We are hoping Jan Malcolm will be on. Commissioner. Commissioner Jan Malcolm. Uh, and we are hopeful that she can make it. We're you can only refer to her as Jan in private because she calls us Heather and Kurt, <laughs> yeah. our friend Jan. But no, on this setting, we need to call her Commissioner Malcolm. Yeah, Commissioner Malcolm. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so uh, tune in for that. And I think our band is uh, getting going. So we'll end here. Thanks for listening. We will see you the next uh, time. You're brooding or you're old disgrace The black that's Williams from your place He sent you to the firm Grace and victory was sure As soon the firebrand heat's secure And tally met at Glen Malure With Yip McHugh will burn Grace is well, Lord Kildare Yip will do what Yip will dare Now Fitz William have a care Colin is your scarlet With hammer and with sword One will go for by the Lord Yip McHugh is given the word Follow me up to Carlo To Clonmore, there goes a boom of Saxon gore. All great is Rory O'Gomore. It's and loons to Hades. White is sick and gray is fled. And now for Black Fitzwilliam's head, we'll send it over. Turban red to Liza and her lady. Curse as well, look as there. Will you and you will dare. Now Fitzwilliam, have a care. Fun is your star, low. Oh, with power and all with sword. One will go for by the Lord. Big McHugh is given the word. Follow me up to Carlo. All over the English pale See all the children of the gale Beneath O'Burn's banners Roosters of the fighting stock Would you let a Saxon cock Crow out upon an Irish rock Fly up, we'll teach you manners Curse as well, Lord Kildare Yep, we'll do what yep, we'll dare Now Fitzwilliam, have a care Fun is your star, low Up with power, down with sword And we'll go for by the Lord Yep, McHugh has given the word Follow me up to Carlo Curse as well, Lord Kildare Yuck will do if yuck will dare Now Fitzwilliam have a care Fun is your stallow Out with power, double sword On will go for by the Lord Yuck McHugh was given